Last week, I showed you a, a, a picture of Daryl Strawberry and myself, and I came up with some, some uh, questions about uh, uh, what do you think this caption is? What do you think he is actually saying to me? Um, actually, to be honest with you, all he's doing is posing. But the more I looked at this, the more I thought that maybe he's saying something to me. At one point, I thought maybe he's yelling out security and asking for security. Well, I actually uh, share a couple that our staff um, shared with me. Uh, These would be a caption that he's saying, don't listen to this guy. Thank you, Grace. Um, Look at the size of his head. Listen, it's perspective, buddy. His head was much bigger than mine. I I promise you that. Um, I wish I had that hair. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, One person said, um, for the last time, give me my glasses back. Uh, Okay, there you go. Um, Someone else wrote, you should really have that tooth looked at. All right. uh, So the reason I brought this up was because um, I was at a, a, uh, a banquet where Daryl Strawberry was actually speaking, and, and one of the things that he said that has not been able to leave my mind, I mean, it has been consuming my thoughts and my reading. It has been the lens through which I have been reading Scripture, and it's this. God rescues, God redeems, God restores. And what we believe here is what, what he was saying that here in this, this uh, time together is, is that in his life, he has experienced in very real and tangible ways that in this point in his life, he can look back and put his finger on moments where God rescued him, where God redeemed him, and God restored him. And one of the things as Easter people, we might think that, yes, there is a time that God is ultimately going to rescue and ultimately going to redeem and ultimately going to restore But in the context of what he was saying, it was God doing this now. God is rescuing now, and God is redeeming now, and God is restoring now. So I'm not going to take that any time to talk about last week. If you want to hear last week's message about God rescues, you can do so on YouTube or on our website, or you can even go to our podcast that podcasts all the sermons called SPUMC worship, SPUMC Columbus worship. Today I want to zero in on God being the Redeemer. And what does this mean? Now you got to stick with me here for a little bit. As we talked last week about God rescuing, that is pretty easy to visualize what that might mean. When we talk about God redeeming, and when we talk about God redeeming us, We have a difficult time understanding what that looks like because redemption, the word redeem, is a very cultural word. It is not a living word. When it was used in the Old Testament, it meant something very specific and very different than what we mean today with the word redeem. Now, we have Christianize the word redemption. And it is not a theological word. Theological word is uh, in the sense of, of, of uh, uh, like 
justification. Justification is a theological word, right? Eschatological, that's a, a, a theological word. Soteriology, yeah, that's a, a theological word. We Theological words are words that we typically hear just in the context of it like this, or a Bible study, or we're reading a book about God, or Christianity, or faith, or redemption, or whatever. We will hear the words justification, eschatological, or soteriology in those, and, and we do not use them that often, but we do use redeem in our culture. We do use the word redeem, and what we have to be careful of is us not using our understanding of redemption to imply what it means when God redeems. Because when we use the word redemption, we use the word like um, redeeming a coupon. I remember growing up as a kid, my mom, we would go through the checkout line and, and then we would be in there forever because first of all, my mom had to write a check. And that took forever because first of all, she couldn't find her checkbook. And then she would say, oh, it was in the car or something like that. But finally she found it and, and, and then it was the coupons. And, and then she'd pull out her little bag of coupons that she'd clip and she'd pull these coupons up. And then she'd give them and the, the lady would take it off. And then she would argue with the, the checkout clerk and say, no, that was a triple coupon. We're supposed to triple that here, right? And there was this whole art. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, can I wait in the car, mom? Redeeming coupons, we use that term, or maybe in our vernacular, we might say redeem a gift card or redeem frequent flyer miles. You know, frequent flyer miles, we'll redeem those. Maybe we'll use it in a whole different context where we might say that so-and-so just redeemed themselves. And usually this is in the context of an athlete. In a baseball game, if, a, if an athlete has a lot of errors in the beginning of the game, but at the ninth inning, in the bottom of the ninth inning, at the last out, he hits a walk-off home run, you would say that he just redeemed himself, Right? He just made things better. And this is how we use redeem. But when the Bible talks about redeeming, these images are not where the writer wanted his readers to go. For example, look at this passage in Isaiah. And we're going to come back to this at the end. But thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. Okay, do not have any fear, God says, for I have redeemed you. Okay, am I a coupon? Are, are you using a gift card here, God, to redeem me? Maybe you, God, maybe God, you've got some frequent God miles going on here, and if you don't use these frequent God miles, you're going to lose them. So you want to just, hey, it just seemed like the I might as well go ahead and redeem so and so. I mean, this is not what God is saying. Our cultural understanding of redemption is shallow. And you use a coupon, no big deal. There's another one in next week's, uh, um, another online or in the newspaper. Or you redeem your Chick-fil-A points, no big deal. Your wife or your daughter can, can gift you some more. So to fully understand what redeem means in the context of God redeeming, we must look at the word from a different perspective in the culture that it was written and not in ours. And here's the tension. If we don't, if we don't, we will miss the overarching significance and implication of what it means when God redeems you. 
If you don't understand what redemption meant to the original writers when they were speaking or to Isaiah, what it meant to Isaiah in his culture when God said, Redeem, I have redeemed you, you will never understand why it means, why fear not can be there. And you'll miss the big idea and ultimately one of these great, loving, and magnificent works of God will become nothing more than something insignificant. We will look at redemption, we will hear the word God redeems, and we will speak about it, read about it, hear about it over and over, and it will become no big deal. That's a problem. That's a problem. So let's dig in. Let's get this idea of what this really means and put your seatbelts on, friends. I'm going to try to go as fast as I can while slowing down on the main points just to give us this overarching understanding because without this, we have no idea of the implications and the significance of what redemption means, specifically when it says God redeems us. We get the word Christianized in the New Testament. And they get it from Old Testament culture. And when you step into the Old Testament culture, you can't help but notice how enormously different their culture was from our culture. Their culture existed in a tribal society or a society built around families or clans. And, and in this tribal society, the family is literally the foundation of the community. And the person ultimately responsible for this clan and this respons this responsible for this family was the oldest living male of that family. And this male had a title. He was the patriarch. He was the patriarch. Patriarchs had responsibilities. The first responsibility was for the well-being of his family. The patriarch, the oldest living male of this family or this clan, was responsible for the well-being of everyone. His sons, his daughters, before they got married, because after the daughter got married, the daughter moved to another clan. He was responsible for his son's wives. They became a part of his clan. He was responsible for their safety and their well-being. He was also responsible for the law. He was a law enforcer, not just the law of Israel, but religious law and family law. The oldest living male was in charge of making sure that each of his family was following this, and he could become the enforcer. He didn't have, there was no city government that was going to be the enforcer. There was no police. The patriarch was the enforcer, and the patriarch was the guardian or the caretaker of his family or his clan. He had the responsibility to care for his own, who maybe because of their own decisions, poor decisions, became marginalized through poverty, through death, through war. It was the job of the patriarch to care for the well-being, enforce the law, and to be the guardian and caretaker of his family. Now, all of this is resting upon the cornerstone of the patriarch. And this is so different from our society because when we think of our society, it is the government's job, right, to provide economic 
uh, uh, opportunity. It is the government's job to enforce law. It's the government job that cares for the marginalized. In fact, when we compare our family with the old tribal idea of Old Testament family, where family was central, in our culture, many families sometimes willingly offload their responsibilities to the government when it comes to the well-being of their family, the rules of the family, the care of their family, and, listen, the faith of their family. It's not, hey, time out. It's not the church's responsibility to raise your children of, to be faithful Christians. That rests on you. We will walk alongside of you. We will help you. But it's the family's job to do that. Where government may be the safety net for the people, this was not so in the culture of family, of, of Israel. The safety net was the, cult, was the patriarch. Now, an example of this is a lady named Naomi. What happened to Naomi? You, all, you, you may not know that name. You may not understand, but let's, let me quickly go through what happened to Naomi. And this is an example of the cultural implications of the patriarch, right? The cultural. We have not even stepped into the implications of what it means for a believer or for us as Christians. This is just still cultural understanding. Naomi's husband was a guy named Elimelech. Elimelech was, a, was part of the clan of Benjamin, part of the tribe of Judah. And, from the, and Naomi and Elimelech were married, and they go to Moab, and they have two sons, and the two boys marry Moabite women. One woman is named Oprah, and the other woman is named Ruth. So Oprah and Ruth now become a part of the tribe of Elimelech, ultimately being a part of the tribe of Benjamin. They're not Moabites anymore. They are now Israelites, specifically of the tribe of Benjamin and Judah. Unfortunately, while there, Elimelech dies. And certainly, certainly, I would imagine that this was a very horrible thing for Naomi, but she had two sons. And now the oldest son would take the role of the patriarch, and he would become the protector, the caretaker of his mother, his brother, and their wives. Ten years later, while still in Moab, their two sons die. Now this became a real problem for Naomi. She no longer had a husband. She no longer had an oldest male. She no longer had her sons. There was no longer any connection to a tribe. No safety net. So a woman's identity in Israel, her economy, her well-being and protection was always tracked through the male's of her life. She was first her daughter, her father's daughter. Then she became her husband's wife. Then she became her son's mother. And when you exhausted all those, you were a nobody. That is the culture that they lived. Now, Naomi lost all of these. She is a widow and, and her sons died and she's destined for poverty. Now, how serious is this? Without the charity of strangers, her destiny, her future, was starvation and death. Because she had no patriarch, there would be no hope for her. And she knew this, which is why when she heard, about the, heard in the fields of Moab from other women that Israelites are giving away, they're, very more, they're more generous in giving to and providing for the marginalized, the widows and the orphans, she decides to go back to Judah, back to her 
clan, her family of Benjamin, and, and, uh, and, and to see, uh, to, uh, to kind of lean in there to see what God is doing in, in that area to, to be a benefit of that. And many of you know what happened. She reminds her daughter-in-laws before she leaves that they're still young, that they can marry into another family and they can be a part of another clan and they can have the protection of a patriarch, which makes what Ruth says so important and so dynamic in response. Do not urge me to leave you and return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Do you realize what she is giving up? It is just not saying, well, I don't feel like going home. She's given up the very possibility of redemption by staying with Naomi. Oprah goes back. And it turns out that when the two, minute, two women return, they find out that there's a distant relative there in Naomi's late, to Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And when Boaz heard that there was a distant relative, he took on the role that was required of him in Deuteronomy to be the kinsman redeemer by marrying Ruth. Remember? One of the rules or one of the responsibility was for the patriarch to bring and care for the marginalized. Um, Even if it was their own choice of bad decisions, it was the purpose. The role of the the, uh, patriarch or the kinsman redeemer to bring that person back in to become the safety net. Think of the implications of what this meant to Naomi and Ruth when Boaz marries Ruth. Do you see how shallow our word redemption is? I mean, at this point, you might be thinking, so what? What's the big deal? What does this all have to do with God redeeming us? And I have to say, pause, hold on. It has everything to do. You see, we at the church have adopted this word redemption and redeems from New Testament writers. They get it from Old Testament writers, and the Old Testament adopted it as from their everyday secular world. It did not start out as a theological word. It started out as a cultural word. When the Bible first talks about redemption, it talks about the laws, the customs, uh, Israel's particular patriarchs had to do. And, 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 and when we ignore the implication of those customs, we ignore the implications today of what it means for God to redeem us. Now, as you know, as the, New Te- or as the Old Testament unfolds, the scope of redemption grows. From just a cultural responsibility, it grows and starts to move from Israel's relationship to Israelites to Israel's relationship to God. Somewhere, I'm not sure when it happens, one of the writers started to see, do you know what? What we do with each other, this is really what God is doing with us. The way we treat each other, the way we are a safety net, the way that we, we protect, the way that we invite, that, that those who are marginalized or from no clan can become a part of our clan. And because they're a part of our clan, they actually become a part of our family and they live within the borders of our, 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 our city, our, our clan, our tribe. This is what God is doing for us. 
And it's beautifully, this new concept of redemption unfolds in one of the, um, uh, uh, one of the minor prophets' lives. His name was Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he had the unenviable privilege of becoming commissioned by the Lord to live out the life, his life, as an ongoing children's sermon, as an ongoing object lesson or a visual aid of the Lord's relationship with Israel, of how God saw his relationship with Israel. This is what God says to him when he calls him. When the Lord first spoke through when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, "Go, take to yourself a prostitute and have children of whoredom for now that's what he wants them to do. That's the visual aid he wants them. And this is why. For the land commits great whoredom. The people create great whoredom by forsaking me. So this, what is going to unfold in Hosea is this beautiful image of how God sees his relationship and his responsibility to the people of Israel that had been forgotten. So Hosea's story begins with a tale of a local holy man walking down the street to the other side of the tracks, going to the local brothel and picking out for him a wife. Picture the scene. These little Israelite communities had no more than 250 people in them. And when the prophet returned with his bride from the brothel on the other side of the track, can you imagine the gossip? Can you imagine Hosea's emotions as he began his life as the husband to a woman who he knew had been available probably to most of the men in that community for hire? From start to finish, the story is a story that aggravates the soul. And how do you think his wife, Gomer, felt about her place before she met Hosea? The certain agony of her history, of her family that had left her, this little girl, in a very bad place. And in Israel's tribal culture, the agony would be ongoing and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. Because she was not a part of a clan, she would always be defined by someone as an outsider, marginalized. Someone who we could easily cast off. She had no clan. She has a woman who had a sexual past. She would never probably have a husband again. And whatever children she had who were born into that uh, prostitution, they would be shunned by the community for generations to generations to generations, and this is Gomer's fate. But then one morning, a miracle happens for her. Hosea, a man of stature, a man of means, asks her to be his wife, and almost certainly this was an emotional reversal for her. This woman with a past, with no future, as once her past was erased because she joined another clan. She became someone new. She became a woman with a future. And as the story continues, the brokenness of her life was so, it was not easily fixed by this marriage. And the young woman found herself who had gone from nothing to everything. She repeats the crimes of her past and begins to go back into the life of prostitution. Now consider humiliation that Hosea had, the anger when he finds out that his wife has been cheating on him, and thoughts wondering how she could think so little of him. 
And she could think that the life of promiscuity is better than this new life with him as his wife. Gomer is at rock bottom. She has no money, no protection, no family, no patriarch who is responsible by law to redeem her. And she is forced into slavery, being auctioned off at the city gates. And guess what? God speaks one more time to Hosea. Jeez, thanks, God. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. And even as the Lord, now this is right. That's what he wants him to do. And now he's going to say, why? This, now God is going to make the connection of what this means in the religious relationship between the people of Israel and him. As the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And now... Hosea finds himself in the public square in the presence of his neighbors, bidding on the mother of his children. He's bidding on his wife. And I mentioned at the beginning of this story, that call, his call was to be a visual aid. God was Hosea, Israel was Gomer, and the people of Israel had forsaken their God. The picture of redemption here is so much deeper, so much in, uh, more significant. The implications are so much larger than just a coupon or redeeming some frequent flyer miles or even an athlete redeeming himself in the bottom of the ninth. See, God is putting his name on the line. And with these images now in your brain and in the forefront of your mind, we're ready to begin to understand what it means as Easter people here today that God redeems you. Redemption in Israel was the act of who? The patriarch who put his own resources on the line to ransom a family member who'd been driven to the margins of society, who had been captured by an enemy and held in captivity, who had found themselves enslaved by the consequences of their own choices. Redemption was the means by which the lost family member was restored to a place of security within the family. And there was only one person who had this responsibility. And there was only one person who had this job, the patriarch. And this becomes the backdrop in which we Easter Christians find ourselves today. Listen. Listen to the metaphor of Scripture. God is presenting himself as our redeemer. And God has announced his intent to redeem his lost family members. Not only has he agreed to pay whatever the ransom is required, but he has sent the most cherished member of his household to accomplishment, accomplish this, his son. 
Jesus understood his job. As he writes after uh, uh, Zacchaeus and the people are grumbling because Jesus is spending time with this outsider. This person who is is marginalized. His clan has disowned him because he's a tax collector. He is going into this man's house to eat. And without the understanding of redemption, we have no understanding of why this is so significant. But Jesus says to the people who are grumbling, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And when describing his role to others, Matthew, another tax collector, says it this way, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And to do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Other scripture passages might see, to redeem other people. To give his life to redeem other people. So not only is the Son coming to seek and save the lost, but he is coming to share in his inheritance with these who have squandered everything they have been giving. Maybe they're doing it because of their own choice. Maybe they're doing it because they are being tempted and they, the, 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 the draw, the enticement of the temptation and the sin is so great. And Jesus is zeroing in to those people. This is the image of what it means when God redeems. God not only rescues us, because that would be Jesus just coming to seek us, to save us, but also Jesus comes to redeem us. And God paid the price through his son so that you and I can take our old life and throw it away. And as Paul writes in Corinthians, we can become a new creation because all things have become new when we are in Christ because we are actually joining another family another clan. We are under the responsibility of someone new. And the old is gone. And even when we stray, the beautiful thing is that God does not do what we would do. And he does not write you off. But continually waits for you to see the light of your own mistake and come back. Certainly God rescues, but God redeems. This is what I want you to do this week. I want you to take whatever image that may help you understand redemption for you in the context of the Old Testament culture, what it might look like for you, and I want you to give it a name. It could be sin, but just not sin. Let's get specific. What sin 
is God redeeming you from? God is taking this oldness, this old way, and giving you something new. Maybe it is uncertainty. Maybe it is something of of a future or a past, and and, and it's regrets or shame of yesterday, or it's the unknowns of tomorrow, but right now, I'm just driven by that. But God invites you not to live in the future or the past. He wants you to live in the present and the eternity, in eternity. He wants you to have faith now in what it means for God to redeem you from that. Maybe it's a part of your mind. Maybe it's a part of your actions. Maybe it's a part of your relationships. What has God said, I want to redeem you from? Because when we see it from a 30,000 foot perspective, right now we may not notice it, but we realize that this is hurting our soul. This is tearing us apart and from God. What is it? And I want you to hear when you give it a name, I want you to hear God speak to you addressing you, not with all the things that we have done wrong, not with some kind of remembrance of some past, but him speaking to you saying, John, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of captivity, which is, See, friends, even though you don't feel redeemed, it makes no difference to the effect of redemption. Do you think Gomer felt redeemed or did she keep on living in her past? Do you think Ruth thought about redemption? How about Rahab when she was brought into Simone's family clan? Do you think she remembered her prostitution? Absolutely, that's normal. But don't let that tear you away from the truth of redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of captivity from what? And as you live into this, my prayer is that our response to God's redemption might be as that of the Old Testament people who would cry out in rejoicing of God's steadfast love. Because if God's redemption is nothing more than redeeming frequent flyer miles in your your mind, you've missed the point. No wonder we don't respond in a different way. So may it be for us. God, I pray that as we live into this reality of God rescuing, of God, of you restoring or redeeming, and ultimately, oh God, next week when we talk about your restoration, of you restoring, I pray, oh God, that it will be woven into the very fabric of our minds and that Satan will not be able to steal it from us. I pray, oh God, this for your glory and in your honor. Amen.